Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Sarah. And I'm Erica. So friends, we are in our Lenten series for this year where we have been talking about different Lenten practices that you can adopt, try out during the season of Lent, see what works for you, what doesn't, what do you want to carry on into the future, and what are you perfectly okay with laying aside until next Lent. So, so far we have talked about fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. But in this Holy Week, where are we going to go now? So, so far we've talked about a bunch of mostly individual practices, sometimes that have had impacts on others, but mostly stuff that we practice by ourselves or maybe with our family, small group of friends. And so today we want to talk about a more communal practice, or I should say maybe practices, of being in worship throughout Holy Week. Um, so often, you know, we're in worship every Sunday and, and we've got that down, but Holy Week's a very special week in the church year for us to gather and to really step into those final days of Jesus's life and to recreate them in some ways, to relive them in some ways, to talk about that story that maybe we've talked about throughout the season of Lent on Sunday morning. So maybe we haven't. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to talk about some of the different types of services we find during this week, Palm Sunday, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, um, and maybe some others that have been part of our own faith journeys in the past and how those help us to connect with the central aspect of our faith. Yeah. One of the things I really, really like about having this particular conversation come after having talked about things like fasting or almsgiving or prayer um, is to see this storytelling as a, 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 not just a tradition, um, but something like a, a practice that's meant to shape us. And like we talked at the beginning of this whole series that if we're going to treat any of these uh, spiritual disciplines um, rightly. It's not with the attitude of, I have to do this so that I will impress God or impress my friends. Jesus seems to think that's the opposite of what we should be doing. That similarly here, like, this is not that God needs this story retold because God forgets it. Um, but that this story that is retold and, like you say, almost rehearsed in some ways in the course of Holy Week is about reshaping us, um, to be a certain kind of people and, and almost to see, uh the the story flowing at at holy week as one more faith practice we might take on um intentionally to be restored and that's how we think about prayer and fasting as well how does this shape the kind of human being i am not i did this because i checked off our religion box or something and again it can feel that way too with holy week it could be mm -hmm. i gotta go to church. our church is having all these services i gotta check them off the box because that's what i'm supposed to do but it's more like about how we let these stories do their work on us how we let the the living word jesus shape us uh over the course of this story I think as a pastor, one of my biggest biggest challenges with Holy Week is that it can become just a to-do list, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like in order to prepare for Palm Sunday, I need to make sure I have my sermon ready. I need to make sure that the bulletin is ready um, for Monday, Thursday. I need to make sure that we have the liturgy correct because often the liturgy changes for just that one service and my sermon and the bulletin. Oh, Good Friday, I need to make sure I have the bulletins ready. I need to make sure I have all the correct candles for the tenebrae service. I need to make sure X, Y, and Z, right? Like it just continues mm -hmm. on and on and on. And so like it, it can very quickly without intentionality become just a giant to-do list, a very stressful week because it's a lot of worship services. It's a lot of um, and, you know, my case, being a clergy couple with small children, a lot of making sure I have child care covered, make sure that the house is clean for the babysitters, make sure that there's supper for the babysitters. Like, it's a lot. And it's very easy for me to lose sight of why we're doing this, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I'm just too wrapped up in my own stress of the week. Yeah. And so I think it's really important to take that step back and to take a big, big picture look at the week and to go, 
well, this is why we're doing this. We're not just yeah. doing this to create more work for ourselves. We're not just doing this to make pastors' lives miserable for this one week out of the year <laughs> that we really just want to stick it to the pastor, right? Like, no, that's not why we're doing this. Yeah. And uh, similarly, that, that big picture view is helpful to, to recapture because the way that this week plays out means that different nights end with different parts of the story. And for a large portion of that week, it only gets sadder. I mean, you move from Mm -hmm. the, the, what feels like a triumphant note or at least a note of hopeful defiance at Palm Sunday that so quickly takes a turn, whether on that very same day, if you observe Palm and Passion Sunday, where you get to hear that whole plot twist all all at once, or by Thursday when you're getting to the betrayal of Jesus at uh, Maundy Thursday and the foot washing and the, the weeping in the garden, you end each of those nights having almost having to find someone to tell yourself as a pastor and the congregation okay i know it's going to end sadly today please keep coming please come for the rest of the story we need to go through all this because it it means nothing if we just jump from palms to he's risen from the dead without Mm -hmm. oh yeah we went to hell and back in the meantime Mm -hmm. but that's a hard piece too and yet that's part of how the story works I, i guess there's a piece for me that i've come to appreciate the delayed gratification feel of Holy Week, the same way that all of Lent is that same kind of delayed gratification. Like here's 40 days of we're not there yet. And 40 days of you're not doing this. If you take, you know, doing some kind of fast or you're changing your rhythm and that can feel drawn out. And then to say, we live in a culture that is so used to, I need to get to the bottom line in a, you know, 200 character tweet or in a 22 episode sitcom length and to say some stories take time let this one do its work on you is also part of that sort of different way we're formed and shaped for the culture we live in so and Steve, you, I, go ahead erica you talked about just jumping from palm sunday to easter sunday and and that's why i stress so much holy week because mm-hmm. so often churches do that we go from hallelujah and hosannas to I should say from Hosannas to hallelujahs mm-hmm. and we forget what happens in between. Right. And like good Friday, I, I tell my folks this all the time. Good Friday is one of my favorite days of the year to preach. And they're like, why? <laughs> I'm like, cause I like the challenge of having to stop in the middle of that story and having to just sit with it. Mm-hmm. Because it, that's something that's the only day really out of the entire year that most people will get to just sit with the death of Jesus and not immediately jump to, yeah, he raises from the dead. Mm. I I have um, come to terms with in the last couple of years that I really struggle with my Good Friday sermon and even Monday, Thursday, um, because the way I was taught to preach is you (laughs) take a look at the trouble in the text and the trouble in the world. And then you have that answering grace in the text, grace in the world. Um, like that's how I was taught to preach. And so Holy Week is this week where you just get all of the trouble, mm-hmm. right? And you have yeah. to resist that pull of pointing to the grace because that grace is Easter morning, right? So like mm-hmm. I have to resist and it's so hard because it feels like my sermon's incomplete because I'm so used to that, like, you know, trouble and then grace that like when I don't touch on the grace at all, it's just kind of yeah. like, I guess this is the yeah. end of my sermon. But it doesn't feel like the end because Seth doesn't get the final answer. But like, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the ending. (laughs) Right, right. So it's a, it's a week long. Spoiler alert. I can't say more yet. Spoiler alert. Right. Go back on Easter. Life so often doesn't wrap itself up nice and neatly like an old Brady Bunch episode. Right. You know, where the problem happens at the beginning and 30 minutes later, it's done. Right. Um. And so I think that's why I like Holy Week so much is because it allows us to sit in what life is like Yeah, for yeah. so many people and a reminder that we're not alone in that. Right. You know, Jesus went through that. The disciples went through that. 
And to me, that's that's what helps me to deal with the same dynamic you described, Sarah, where like the temptation is to be like, I guess I'm supposed to not talk about Easter yet, but like that's sort of this word of hope. But like sometimes the grace to be heard from the text and from the in the world is about the God who's willing to go to hell with us, the God who's willing to sit there in the valley of the shadow of death. And um, that, okay, even before we get to resurrection, it's I will be here with you. There's this... um. There's this song, it is, I think, the second saddest song I have ever heard um, by the band Death Cab for Cutie uh, called I Will Follow You Into the Dark. I don't know if either of you know this band or the singer Ben Gibbard. Um, but to me, it is like, and, and he, he entirely does not mean this as a song of faith at all. It's, it's a song about love even in the face of death. But the the recurring line goes, um, if heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied and illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs, if there's no one beside you when your soul embarks and I'll follow you into the dark. And so the whole song is about like singing to the beloved, like at some point we're both going to die and it's going to be okay because I'll be with you. So it's not even like a, we'll get to heaven. We're not, it's just, I'll, I'll go, I'll go there into the darkness with you. Um, and in spite of the fact that he does not intend that as a song of faith at all, or as a song about Jesus, church nerd me can't help but hear that as like that's good friday and easter vigil it's jesus doubling down and saying fine even if we're not yet to the the stone rolled away yet um if if now you're headed into the darkness i'll go into the i'll go into the darkness with you um and like that's grace enough for one day until we get to easter and maybe maybe you can't stay there forever but that gives me enough grace for one day till till we get to sunrise service you know Excellent. I'm so glad when our podcast recording will give me sermon illustrations. <laughs> yeah. I, I I warn anybody who's not heard that song, if you choose to look it up, be prepared. Don't be driving when you listen, because like I can't get through listening to that song without choking up myself. And I know exactly where it's going, exactly what's going to happen. I just hear the opening uh, arpeggios of the you know plucked acoustic guitar, and I have to stop what I'm doing. And I can't stop that song. If I hear it somewhere, I know now I must listen to it all the way through. I have to soak in the sadness and I need to be there. But to me, that's that's like Good Friday and Easter Vigil right there. But even that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Let's like back up to the start of the drama here. Holy yeah. Week starts as, again, this communal exercise in telling the story of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And in some traditions, I'll own this is the tradition that I come from now, um, on that same Sunday, there's a turn into the passion story. And so in our tradition, after hearing the story of the triumphal entry, and we even do our little reenactment of the procession with palms, waving our palm branches and singing all glory, laud and honor or something like that. Um, then we hear the entire passion gospel of basically the story that goes from palms, well, from like the upper room up to the burial in whichever the gospels is the center in our lectionary for that year. So Matthew or Mark or Luke, knowing that some people won't be coming to all the stories in between when we mm -hmm. sort of zero in on the more detailed stuff. Um, tell me about like, what, what, what's your experience in your congregational life on that first day of Holy Week, whether it's just Palm Sunday or Palm Passion Sunday, what speaks to you or what's the point? Why do we do that? So I tend so, to make it a mix. Yeah. Um, because like you have to have the Palm Sunday part of it. Mm -hmm. like, I feel like you can't skip that part. Cause you know, right. we like happy, but because I know most of my people will not come out to a service or multiple services that week. Like I'll do the all glory, lot and honor and, and the kids with the palms and everything. But usually then the sermon turns into the back end mm -hmm. of Holy Week. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a piece of me that it, it's funny in our tradition um, at the churches I serve right now on Palm Passion Sunday, because we hear that whole story, we don't have a sermon and we just sort of let the story like land on its own. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that feels like that's cheating because it's like, no, someone should now get up and talk about this. But like part of me needs that humbling of like, hey, dummy, this story speaks for itself. Just let the words land where they mm -hmm. do. And you're going to get plenty of other chances to talk about what it all means. But like, just let the story do its work on us. Um, and that also to me helps frame that there's the the Palm Sunday 
joy also has an edge of setting up the tension and the conflict already there. And I think I grew up with just like only the happy part about Palm Sunday and like missing like, so that I grew up with a lot of like, how could the people who were so happy on Palm Sunday be want to kill him, you know, five days later? But like, no, it's there in the story. Like the tension between Jesus and empire is there. The tension between Jesus and the respectable religious leaders is there in that story. And it's just a matter of it takes a couple of days for it to boil over. Not that everybody loves Jesus and then everybody hates him five days later the the conflict is simmering there and it's just under the surface on palm sunday about to explode um and hearing those all side by side sort of makes that clearer so it's not quite so um schizophrenic i definitely have experienced in my traditions that palm sunday because it is that big long passion reading for the gospel reading of um of it being read as a reader's theater style mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. there are multiple people reading there's usually a narrator and then like different people to do the different voices and like there's a part of me that like i love that because i don't have to then talk for 10 minutes straight like because <laughs> that can get like really really like challenging on your voice to just be reading for that long and to have it not be boring you know but and another point like i feel like having it be readers theater i always struggle with it being too much of entertainment versus mm. actually letting it just sink in of how like somber this is you know yeah so like that's yeah. always one of those points of contention for me of like the pros and the cons of this being done readers theater style yeah. One of the things we've done in a number of the past years is we'll break it up, but not as readers theater, but like just take the the whole passion and like break it into maybe like five episodes or something like that and then have a different reader. So you get the the difference of voice. Nobody's doing all of it, but also, yeah, it avoids the, well, how theatrical should we get? Do the people dress up or do the, you know, like, are they supposed to do voices? Right. No, we're, but like the other thing that that allows that just gets me and it's it's funny that like this gesture gets me after doing this all these years is that when we get to the final portion the the death of jesus it's been our tradition i remember reading this in, like in the manual on liturgy at some point like for the the our the congregation will be seated for up until the very last part for the the last portion with the death of jesus and people will stand and rise for that but with nothing else said but it's just sort of like it's almost like um, you know that scene in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird where uh, Atticus is walking out and the one woman says to Scout, stand up, your father's walking back. Like this sense mm-hmm. of like, out of respect. Uh, I mean, the same way we're used to standing and rising for the reading of the gospel in our Sunday worship. But here there's this moment where it's still somber. So it's not like a triumph. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, go team. But more like a terrible thing is happening. And our way of showing respect is simply standing here and, and letting it land. Um, that gets me you know, every year, just that moment. And just that people sort of know the rhythm of this is what we do. And this is the part where we all rise because it's it's like that stand up scout, your father's passing through. The the other part though, I do like about Reader's Theater is often we'll get the entire congregation to play the crowd. Oh, so nice. anytime the crowd mm, yeah. speaks, it's the whole congregation. And so when you get the whole congregation to go crucify him, crucify right, him. Right, right, right so powerful right like it's 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 such a good reminder of this was a mob it wasn't like one person making this decision but rather a whole crowd saying no we don't want that jesus barabbas we want jesus we want that guy we want him to die on the cross and like it's it's a powerful moment and to have the entire congregation to be able to experience what that's like shouting out those words and that um kind of going that full circle of jesus was crucified for us yeah and and there's there's so much in some of the classic hymnody of holy week that draws on that theme of like I wasn't there, but like, no, it was my sin that's a part of this story. Or if I would have been there, I don't get to pretend that I would have been the one trying to save Jesus. I, I would have been there with mm-hmm. the mob, you know, crying out, crucify him. Uh, and by making us as the congregation have to take those words on our own lips, it has that real power. That's that's just phenomenal. Wow. Mm-hmm. 
so the the story of Palm Sunday and then however you tell the story of the passion, that's pretty well known. Lesser <laughs> known and kind of niche happens for some traditions two days later in what is rarely a public service that everybody in church might go to, but is much more limited to uh, pastors or clergy in traditions that it do it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this next piece called the Chrism Liturgy that some might be familiar with, but some might not be familiar with at all, Sarah? Yeah, sure, because I love the Chrism Mass. It is a service that usually is for rostered ministers, um, so pastors, deacons, um, whatever the roster list might look like in your denomination. I've experienced it, like heard of it in such denominations as the Roman Catholics, <clears throat> Episcopalian, Lutherans. Um, and so it is usually a Holy Week service. I've experienced it on Tuesdays. Um, and it is a morning Eucharistic service. So we have communion. All the pastors come and the deacons and we have a worship service together where we get to be participants in worship and not leaders. Um, so it's just a great moment to sit in the pew and to hear the word of God and to hear a sermon that we didn't have to craft and we don't have to speak. We just get to listen. We also have the blessing of the oil where the bishop of our denomination, so again, this is Lutherans, um, will bless our oil that we use for the year for the anointing of the sick, for baptisms, um, for Ash Wednesday, and those are then handed out to all of the pastors. So like if you have a really large congregation, you'll take a couple vials. If you have a small congregation, you'll have one vial. If you somehow ended up with 10 vials last year, like I did, I probably won't take any this year <laughs> because I still have like eight unopened vials. Um, and we have communion and we also have this moment where we reaffirm our ordination vows. And then we go out to lunch and we get to have <laughs> lunch and a beer if you're so inclined and get just this moment before this moment in Ashwin or not Ash Wednesday during Holy Week where we get to just take a breath and to, you know, it's the calm in the midst of the storm. The the oil that you were talking about there for folks who didn't make this connection, the the name of this service, the Chrism Mass or Chrism Liturgy, um, is the comes from the word for anointing. Uh, this actually the same root as where the title Christ comes from, from the Anointed One. That the oil is is oil um, for uh, anointing in any of those purposes, and the Greek word for anointing is. It is the same root for that chrism christos all that kind of thing so like in case that word is unfamiliar to folks uh that's where it all comes from and that's what connects all this that anointing oil is and this is sort of again like a, an annual reset okay you will use this again in the coming year um and brief side note for people paying attention to current events uh there's been news recently about the preparations for king charles the third's mm -hmm. coronation and whether the chrism anointing oil will be vegan or not i guess it like will it will not contain ambergris from actual sperm whales this time and even though they've done that for hundreds of years so like that's a word that people are pretty much unfamiliar with unless you're a church nerd or a fan of royalty and you're interested about the chrism that will be part of their official anointing as king um but it's that's that that's the where the word comes from in case people are wondering what are they saying what kind of mass is it there's something i think really beautiful um and it, it's it's also saying something about where our focus is in our traditions that of all the times in the church's year that this is where that moment for reaffirming ordination vows happens too and it, it's funny because like for for us that might happen at other points along the way too when we have our um annual synod assemblies where pastors um you know are are uh, ordained each year there's that moment where it can happen there's other times but in this moment during holy week it's sort of like are you willing to be restoried with this story again and this central story of jesus death and resurrection will you let let that be at the center of who you are or will you serve in the church knowing that the one you were saying you're here to serve is the one who gets crucified and rises, not the one who avoids all conflict and everything goes swimmingly all the time. Um, but that's a pretty powerful thing that it's not just like uh, that. It's not even on Pentecost. You know, when you talk about the birth of the church or things like that, it's 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 at it's at the low point. It's at the cross and the resurrection that we're called um, as well. I think that there's something really beautiful about that. 
um, more people are going to be more familiar with the next day in Holy Week where there's traditionally been uh, public worship on Maundy Thursday. What, what does that look like? What are the highlights or things? What are the parts of the story that you lift up each year in your traditions? So Monday Thursday is typically you hear the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And you also hear the story of Jesus's last supper with the disciples and like it's all tied in together, right? And throughout the church's history, this is the day that then the leaders of the congregation, the community, the country will then go and wash people's feet as kind of that symbolic, I am here to serve you. And, um, but I, I struggle with this because like, I've never liked feet washing and either as a pastor or as just somebody sitting in the pew and I have served now multiple congregations that don't like feet washing to the point that they haven't done it for a long time, like predating me, right? Mm. Like they made this decision before I even got there. And then it's a little bit like, well, this is their tradition to not do a feet washing. <laughs> um, but also I'm kind of okay with it because like, I don't like washing feet, but also like it's, like that's such a big part of Monday Thursday mm-hmm. that it then seems really weird to have a service, but also keeping in mind that like the feet washing was only part of that night. The other part mm-hmm. was communion and right. like communion is a cornerstone of the Lutheran faith. Faith, So like we're still clearly doing something, but yeah, the, the feet washing thing yeah i i don't know what to do with it because people don't yeah. like it but also like part of that being uncomfortable with it is kind of the point maybe exactly <laughs> right 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 and like it's funny to me that like this is one of those places where like there are other parts of the of the church's year or the stories in the gospel that i just can't get in the headspace like i don't know what it's like to be peter walking on water i don't know what it's like to you know see him five loaves feed five thousand people but the uncomfortableness that peter has that you're not gonna wash my feet jesus no i need to do this like i can get in that headspace and like this is this is one of those places where i feel like most able to enter into the story and be like yeah i totally get why you don't want this to happen. It feels weird and uncomfortable and awkward. And yet I need that, you know, that, that closeness, the, the holy vulnerability of Jesus coming that close and taking the servant's role all tangled up in there. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, you're right. It's, it almost feels like to, to appreciate it rightly or to do it right. Everybody needs to be a little bit uncomfortable and yet everybody on the other side of it needs to be like, but we needed to do that. <laughs> So in some, oh, I go ahead. I haven't done an, a Monday Thursday since my first parish. Mm-hmm. Um, my last parish didn't do it because my folks would show up to either Thursday or Friday, but not both. And Friday was their tradition. So I love foot washing. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm the oddball out in this. No, I, I'm, I I'm a fan, but I do it with that weirdness of like it's not. It's there's nobody that it's not weird for, and yet it is also beautiful. But yeah, okay. <laughs> Like I had a I had a friend in seminary who thought that that should be our third sacrament in the United Methodist Church. There are traditions washing. that do. Yeah, I think uh, brethren uh, uh, traditions or um no, what am I thinking of? Um, I, I think there are traditions where it is still yeah. uh, treated much more like uh, a third sacrament. Yeah. And I had an experience on a mission trip in college where um, we had gone down to Panama City, Florida. We were evangelizing during spring break and. Towards the end of the week, um, all the guys cooked dinner for the ladies and then they washed our feet afterwards. And like, it still brings back some of the warmest, sweetest memories to me. Um, cause my feet were sunburnt from being out on the beach that day and they had just changed. It was steaming hot water. And, and the guy that washed my feet, whose name I can't remember right now, was just so gentle and so, and like, that's what that's supposed to be you know, mm-hmm. serving and a gentleness and a sweetness about it. Um, and now I'm in a, I'm back in a parish where I'm going to have both Monday, Thursday and good Friday services. And I don't know where they stand on foot washing yet. <laughs> you know, um, 
not going to do it this year, but you know, maybe have conversations next year to see about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. bringing it back I, or, or doing it's, something similar. You right. know, it's, with... it, it's tricky because when you arrive in a place, right, you don't change mm-hmm. any of their traditions, like right. you get to know them, and then you have the yeah. conversations in a year or two about, like, yeah. well, why do you do it this way? Why not try it? Like, like, can we try it this way? Maybe mm-hmm. yeah. see how it goes. Um, yeah. But like that, like I, I've heard of um, congregations who, instead of doing feet washing, will do like hand washing. Sure, and yeah. we we've and, always offered both. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that 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 always seems cheating to me because like <laughs> nobody's really uncomfortable right. with yeah. people washing hands unless yeah. you're my three-year-old in which case if you wash his hands <laughs> right. mad at you but like it's it, it's there's tricky a, and it's there's tough a, there's a part of me that feels like i don't want to let go of the the right of it because of the 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 vulnerability and that closeness and that tenderness mm-hmm. but also that sociologically the washing of feet means something now different than it did in an open-toed sandal culture where everybody's walking Mm -hmm. on dirty dusty roads that have horse plop in them and things like that and that that's the job given to the lowliest of the servants in the household and that jesus takes that up um there's a there's a uh line of a uh poem of wendell berry's that comes to mind uh where he talks about like even the things that you hold on to the act of holding on to them and keeping them changes them and to me it feels like foot washing is one of those great examples of like you know at the end of that whole story in john 13 jesus said now do this for each other i did this as an example you should wash each other's feet but like now we've ritualized it and now in a culture where number one it's a lot less tropical and warmer like bare feet that are wet are gonna be cold in a lot of places you know um and it's it's it are we we wear closed toed shoes all the time and socks and we don't have the same need the same way that you would have in the first century in the mediterranean world that we still hold on to the ritual but it's changed how it works and what it means and so even trying to recapture okay what would be something that's comparable that's got that sense of grubbiness and lowliness or whatever I'm not exactly sure what what that is if we have anything that's quite the same way and that's why to me like that hand washing it's well it's closer in that it's an actual thing people still regularly wash hands but it's not grubby like foot washing was um we had somebody um years and years ago in the one church i serve uh who talked about when our church would do like the highway trash pickup you know a couple of times a year and we have to go pick up litter and things like that by the side of the road there's like you know this is the closest thing i can think of to actually what washing feet would have been like because it's this not very respectable lowly kind of a cruddy thing to do uh you look like you might be prisoners on a work detail kind of a thing we're in the orange vest like it, it's not a, a a a proud kind of a job but it's something that needs to be done there's a piece of me that feels like our foot washing should also include and now you sign up to be part of the litter crew to get that sense of the lowliness <laughs> of what you're doing and the grubbiness instead of the we put the sweet scented incense in the water and it smells so nice and it's calm and reflective like that's that like there's there's something of of the the earthiness that we lose in our culture that even holding on to the tradition has changed and i okay so even though i said hand washing feels a lot like cheating I think that your point being that the foot washing doesn't hold the same cultural baggage because like we don't walk around in just sandals all year long. And like, even when we do in the summer, the places that we're walking are usually cleaner than Mm -hmm. what like the disciples and friends were probably walking around in. And so this is like the one argument I could make for hand washing being a more appropriate cultural thing for us now. Mm-hmm. Now that we have experienced COVID for the past three years, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. hand washing has become such a more important and like important part of our our day to day life. And like, you know, that's not to say that I haven't always been washing my hands because <laughs> I have. <laughs> and but like I'm aware now more of like. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just touched anything outside. I better make sure I wash my hands before I eat this chocolate covered raisin that's in my lunch. Like in ways before that, I probably would have just eaten the chocolate covered raisin or whatever it mm-hmm. is, right? Like, but now it's like, nope, I've touched 
stuff. Like I need to definitely <laughs> wash my hands. Um, and I don't know, maybe this is also like the importance of hand washing is also way big in my mind right now because we are doing that final push for potty training for our youngest. So like hand washing is such a fight, but like I think that there's something to us washing each other's hands and the service of I care and love for you. And that's why I am doing mm -hmm. this thing. Um, mm -hmm. because I care about your health. I care about your well-being. Um, this is a service that I can do is at this moment washing your hands, but also just in general, how I wash my own hands to make sure that I'm not giving germs that I don't need to give. Right. And right. so like that is maybe an argument I could make for hand washing being a super like modern contextual thing that we could do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's funny how so many things happen in the Gospels on this night that there's so many directions or emphasis points mm -hmm. that, you know, and so it is appropriate to let this evening be centered on either foot washing, hand washing, whatever, or communion or both. And uh, in our tradition as well, the service will often end then with the stripping of the altar and the reading of t Psalm 22 as this sort of like... Uh, it's a more abstract reenactment of the garden moment of sort of Jesus' utter abandonment, but that's the idea there too. It's interesting, like what parts of the the chronology of that night we take very literally of Jesus washes feet, we're going to wash feet tonight. And then, okay, Jesus did this meal, so we're going to do this meal. But then like, okay, Jesus was crying in the garden and arrested, so we're going to take the cloth off the altar. Okay, I get it. But like, it's, it is a little bit weird to me how, okay, that, that part we're trusting people can handle the abstract of that's what's going on, here, but that's another part of that moment. And part of why it ends with such an abrupt, okay, that's where the service ends. And then we pick up tomorrow with Good Friday. Do the Methodists strip the altar, Erica? Um, like I said, it's it's been several years since I've done a Thursday service, and and several years since I've been to one as well. Um, I think it depends on the church. I'm trying to think back to my first appointment, if we did, or even back to my home church, if we did or not. Um, and I honestly can't recall. It's been far too long. Um, but. If you have a Friday service, which I have had all throughout my ministry, a good Friday service, it is stripped by then. So if it's not stripped at the end of Monday, Thursday, sometime during Good Friday, probably during the day, it has been stripped. Okay. Um, and then I've, I've typically, my last parish, I, I used a black cloth that I would wrap kind of like either around the base of the cross or like put on the, the altar cross. Um, but yeah, everything else would be usually stripped sometime on Friday, but I didn't have a service on Thursday. So uh, it, it was different. So it's funny serving two congregations that is used to having the tradition of stripping the altar, because that means at mm -hmm. one church, the stripping of the altar is this actually enacted in real time thing with taking things off and me and the other assistants taking them. And then this very dramatic. Uh, I don't know if this is something either of you grew up with, but uh, at the very last thing, the, the altar book is slammed shut at the very last thing. And then so like there's this loud slamming sound that sort of like is the final moment. Um, and like, I can remember growing up with this as a kid and like giving me the willies, but also like, but like, I needed that drama of that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, but then the other church where we are going to be the next night for, uh, Good Friday, because in our tradition, we rotate, <laughs> yeah. then like, I have to like find another time to go strip that altar for the service that's going to mm -hmm. happen. But like, that is entirely unceremonious. It's just sort of, okay, I got to get this done during the day so that it, but it's so weird. Is it, isn't the loud noise though on Friday? I always grew up with it on Monday, Thursday at the end of the stripping of the altar, but I, always, I do it on Friday. I always had it during the tenebrae. Yeah, uh, interesting. I do it on Friday, but I remember Steve going to a Monday, Thursday service at your church uh -huh. back when I was serving Marion Center, and I remember that book yeah. slamming part and yeah. how much like I I think I knew it was coming, uh -huh. but it still startled me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'm with you, Sarah. I typically do it at the end of tenebrae. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that's the last. Slam the book yeah. shut, drop something, whatever, make a big loud noise. Oh, uh, okay. Lights off, out the door. For for us, what what's become our tradition in the churches where I serve is we end Good Friday. And to me, this is part of the way of uh dancing around that line, that spoiler alert line. 
um, because we're also going to gather then on Saturday for the Easter vigil and then on Easter Sunday as well. But no, not everybody's going to come. We have gotten the tradition of ending Good Friday with uh, singing the hymn, Were You There? And um, the last verse about were you there when God raised him from the tomb, we will just hum and like, we don't say it, but it's that sort of like, we're not, we can't, it's not time to sing this yet, but that, mm-hmm. so we'll hum that last, for, that last verse. And then um, we'll do this procession of the, like a big cross is actually carried in. And then like, there's the, this acclamation, um, behold the cross on which was hung the salvation of the world. And then that's the sort of the last thing. So that then the first thing that we do at the Easter vigil is we sing the fourth verse of, were you there? The, were you there? And God raised from the tomb as like this way of like, yeah, it was supposed to feel incomplete mm-hmm. on Friday. We're carrying it over on Saturday with that sort of connecting point. Um, and that's, again, part of it and why we've done the slamming of the book on Thursday. But I think that's what I grew mm-hmm. up with, too. And, and those three services, so Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Vigil, if you do them, are meant to be one worship service spread yeah. over three nights. Right. And so, um, like, oftentimes, like, we have the Eucharist on Thursday, and then on Friday, we don't because we've right. already had it. Yeah. Um, and which is also why on Thursday, we depart in silence, like we leave mm-hmm. in silence. And then mm-hmm. on Friday, we begin in silence, like yeah. there's no prelude. Mm-hmm. Um, which that <laughs> that's the one reason I don't particularly like stripping of the altar. Um, oh, like, okay. I think it's beautiful. I think it's great. But often practicality, what happens is everything gets left on my desk. <laughs> and then everybody departs in silence and then i have all of the things on my desk that i have to then either like just live with on my desk until sunday or like deal with before i go home on thursday yeah. night like so mm-hmm. that's like the one practical thing that i don't like because everybody just leaves in silence and then my desk mm-hmm. is a mess which drives me <laughs> yeah like this is the part that rarely did I pay any attention to this when I was the kid sitting in the pew and like, where are all these things going? Who has to deal with them? I don't know, not my worry. And now it's like, oh man, this is my worry. And <laughs> or or even as a teenager, I was usually the one like one of the people helping to strip the altar, carrying it from the sanctuary mm-hmm. to the dumping zone. But I never <laughs> questioned later of like, well, then what happens to it? It's like, right. nope, they just told me to put it on this table right. or desk or wherever. And it wasn't right. until I was a pastor that it was like, oh, no, the dumping zone is my office. Like, <laughs> yeah, I don't like this. I yeah. I like neat and orderly offices, not all of the sanctuary items on my mm-hmm. desk. Like, yeah. Can I ask, are there other things sort of moving from Thursday to Friday or Saturday? Are there other parts of that week or tradition that are important to each of you that are things you would call uh, call attention to or highlight about what what what's important about that practice of gathering for worship on Good Friday or what happens on, at the vigil if you're part of a vigil. So I experienced a Tenebrae Good Friday service for the first time last year as like a leader, like mm-hmm. leading it, which was challenging because I'd never, I don't think I've ever seen one before, but then suddenly I was having to lead it. And so a tenebrae service is Latin for, or tenebrae is Latin for darkness. And um, so usually you start with like just a lot of candles on the altar and they're all lit. And then you read a story and sing a hymn and you extinguish a candle. And then you have another like reading or hymn or whatever, and you extinguish another a candle and it is it's beautiful and mm-hmm. so we do our loud noise on good friday with the loud noise as the last candle is extinguished oh uh, okay and um again last year was my first time doing it and so like i didn't actually know about the loud noise and so <laughs> i forgot to like have somebody lined up to make the loud noise but luckily Several people took it upon themselves to realize this as the service went on. And so as the last candle was being extinguished, three different people dropped him hymnals. <laughs> and so it wasn't like all up perfect. So it was like, thump, thump, thump. Like it, which was kind of fantastic that like multiple people thought, oh mm. no, we need a loud noise. Let me just drop the <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, but that was, that was good. Nice. Nice. In our 
tradition at the church that I serve, it's been the tradition to read uh, the Passion According to St. John on Good Friday. Uh, so we will have heard on back on Palm Passion Sunday, one of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and then to hear John's, which sort of gives like, because even though they're telling the same story, they have such different emphases and such different little episodes within the story uh, to have heard that. Um, and then we'll do, we'll break that up into five pieces. And at, at the end of each section, we'll put out a candle as well. Yeah. How about for you, Erica? What 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 happens as part of Good Friday for you? So, um, I mean, the ten bray with the extinguishing of candles after the readings, um, there's always a sermon at the beginning of our ten bray service. It's usually a little bit shorter. Um, I had the privilege of doing it, I think, all three years that I was in my first appointment and then obviously through, throughout my last appointment. Um, one of the fun things I've been able to do with ten bray is that, um, and I think maybe the I forget which year I, I did this the first time. I experiment a little bit with my sermon on that day. And there's very few ways that women ministers can do first person, you know, retellings of of stories of the gospels mm-hmm. or throughout scripture in general. Um, but I have played Mary, the mother of Jesus mm-hmm. and told the story from her perspective. And that is just, Actually, the first time I did that was for Community Good Friday service back when I was probably in seminary and I came home. Um, and that is just a really unique thing for me to be able to do. Um, because, Steve, you can't pull, you know, like you could be John. You could do it from Jesus' perspective. But like to to get Mary's perspective, I think it's just mm-hmm. a really unique thing to bring about. And it's. Like I said, it's one of the few places um, scripturally that I can do something first person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes sense. And have it make you know. sense. Like I've done the prodigal son and I've, I've made, I've modernized it and made it, you know, a, like a teenager, early 20 something, you know, in the 21st century. And it, it makes sense too, but like to actually be a person there. Sure. And I've also done like just from the perspective of one of the other Marys or one of the other women, female disciples mm-hmm. um, who were at the cross. And that has been, I think, powerful for the congregation. It's been powerful for me to prepare because mm-hmm. um, it's not just, OK, we're going to preach about Good Friday and about, the you know, but like. You got to put yourself into all the emotions and and that idea that, well, we know the end of the story. Mm-hmm. We know Easter's coming. Mm-hmm. They didn't. Right. Right. I think that's another one of the pieces that I value about uh, the 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 way Holy Week unfolds is that not that we have to pretend we don't know what's going to happen, but it puts us in that headspace or that that emotional space again of like going through the almost like when you watch a movie you've seen before and there's sad parts mm-hmm. and like you can still you don't just oh it's not sad anymore because I know the, how the how the ending is, but like it to go through the story again pulls on us in those ways. That's part of what happens in the course of Holy Week and our willingness to make ourselves vulnerable to those feelings of betrayal or heartbrokenness or grief or mm-hmm. how was I complicit in this, all that kind of thing. Th- there's something valuable in that. Anything folks want to call attention to about the Easter vigil on, on Saturday for those who know that tradition? It's, it's a very long worship service. Yeah. For people <laughs> who don't know, you're signing up for something that is a lot longer than standard one hour Sunday morning. Yeah. Okay. It is. It is. It's, it's not been my personal tradition. Like okay. if I am a solo pastor and it's not been the tradition of the congregation, I am not going to start it. And <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> however, I have participated before, um, my my last call, they would do it. And I liked how they did it because it wasn't just a them service. It was a, we're going to get together with all of the local traditions or like local churches where this is the tradition. And we're going to do a worship service together. Mm-hmm. And so it was like my congregation. I want to say, Steve, your congregation might have been there. The Episcopalians were there. Like it was a bunch of us. And it 
it was beautiful because I think for me that really hit home of like this day is bigger than us. Mm, it is mm-hmm. bigger than our tra- individual traditions. It is we are here to celebrate the resurrection of our savior and that crosses denominational lines it crosses Mm -hmm. congregational lines like we're all here together because this is a big deal yeah and uh for folks who don't know how the easter vigil works or sort of the structure like it's got long long deep deep roots going back to the days when preparation for becoming a christian meant like this you know um all night vigil before people would baptize on Easter Sunday. And it was all through the night when they'd retell the central stories of our faith. And in, in some ways, like if, if all of Holy Week is about zooming out to a bigger story, Easter vigil zooms out all the way to the biggest, widest view going back to creation and traces how from the beginning, like here's God working throughout history. And you'll tell it's sort of like the greatest hits is like, here's the Noah story. And here's the binding of Isaac. And here's Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and the Passover. And, and uh, all those stories are almost told like, like, um, like the, 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 in some ways it's like the, the way you talk and tell stories at a wake, like waiting, you know, like while you're you know grieving or keeping vigil for the, the dead, because it's Jesus. And yet it's also like, and then resurrection happens and there's this turning point where the lights come on and the flowers come out and we sing all the hallelujahs. And it's, it's this, it's like being there in the, that, that moment of transition from, darkness and keeping vigil in at the grave to the resurrection it's really really powerful in that way but yeah so dramatic because it takes so long to do that that motion there is a moment in the easter vigil service that i love and that is the moment where we transition from lent into easter and often the um like the pyramids get changed or like the place where I've celebrated it, there was like screens in front of the altar. So the altar was already kind of all decked out in Easter stuff and they put screens up so you couldn't see it. And they put, they like moved the screens and, um, and it's this just beautiful moment of that transition from Lent to Easter. Um, And I'll never forget though, that I could hear from the organ loft, the student organist, who had given up soda for Lent, opened a bottle of Coke and it went, (laughs) you could hear it (laughs) in the entire sanctuary because for him, Lent was over and he could have a Coke and he was going to drink it (laughs) while sitting at the organ. Nice. Nice. That's awesome. It is, it is um, a cool thing to be able to try and experience in real time the jarring uh transition like from in even in the gospels like there's this and they rolled the stone in front of the tomb and they left and they rested on the sabbath to like the and the next thing you know the stones rolled away and how to how to enact that or or walk through that it's it's such a powerful transition there that it's one of the things i think so powerful it just yeah it takes a lot of work to get there if you're going to do that whole service so we've taken an extra long time to wade through all the things that go on in this uh, week, and we would commend you in these coming days uh, where you have the opportunity, participate in the story and let the story do its work on you, whether one night or multiple nights uh, in the rest of this Holy Week, uh, to be restoried in the in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, we'll join you as we've come through it all next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.